Amen. Well, the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to ask you as we start out tonight, probably a question that maybe some of you don't take too much offense to, but do you? Do you love God? Do you love God? John Stone Street identifies the gods of our age, the little g-gods of our age, as uh, self, sex, state, science, and stuff. There's a great podcast that I'll post to, uh, post to fbcabbyville.net where he goes through each one of these. But the command still applies, doesn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. And yet these are the gods of our age, are the gods that, that our community, our culture, our nation are immersed in. Uh, all throughout the nations, these are the temptations to worship these little g-gods, these idols, even though they have no power, even though they are fickle and frail and made by human hands, or they're, they're something that God never intended them to be. And in the Gospels, we've explored this truth that God has come near to deliver us from sin, from the bondage to the flesh, and from the lesser affections of this world. He's come to establish a new people and set free from the old desires of sin and pursuing new purposes. And Luke's gospel is written to confirm the hopes and the faith of people who love God. It's the longest gospel account with the most detail about Jesus' life. And it was written as the first of a two-part miniseries chronicling the impact of Christ and his followers. And many of you know that, that, uh, that Luke and the book of Acts are intended to be, to be read together. Now, in Matthew, we were challenged to submit to Christ's authority and to follow him, uh, his authoritative teaching. In Mark, we were called to serve sacrificially as Christ served. And now in Luke, we're going to be called uh, to follow in his footsteps and radically run towards the outcasts, towards the poor and the weak. And so we want to begin just understanding, like I said this morning, why these gospel writers wrote, why they said what they said, why they said it the way that they said it. And so we want to begin in Luke chapter 1, just understanding why Luke wrote and understanding his specific purpose. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke begins and he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things, read in their Matthew and Mark, right? Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You see, far from discounting Matthew and Mark's account, Luke, who was a doctor by vocation, uses his investigative and diagnostic prowess to compile accounts from multiple eyewitness sources. We know uh, for a fact that he used Mark's account as a foundation. And this may surprise you, but did you know that over 60% of Mark's gospel is found verbatim in Luke? It's pretty obvious that Mark relied upon, I mean, uh, Luke relied upon the testimony of Mark and ultimately upon the testimony of Peter as well. We also know that he spoke to Mary as, as he has particular insight into her mind and into Jesus' childhood, as well as disciples who saw Jesus after he had been raised from the dead. And yet we also know that Luke wrote from his own perspective, highlighting things like, for instance, Jesus' humanity. As a doctor, he was intrigued by the physical traits and emotions shown by Jesus, such as him weeping, as him sweating drops of blood, he records how he ate, appeared, and disappeared, and had the ability to disguise his appearance after the resurrection. 
He was also intrigued by Jesus' prayer life. Did you know that over, uh, there's over 15 prayers of Jesus recorded in the four Gospels? And do you know how many are recorded in Luke? Eleven of them. So it's obvious that, that as, as Luke interviewed disciples, as, as, he, as he heard these eyewitness, eyewitness accounts, that he was intrigued by the prayer life of Jesus. Also, he is uh, intrigued by Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. You see, Luke was a Gentile. Remember, we talked about Gentiles are simply non-Jewish people, right? So Luke was a Gentile, and we know that he was writing to other Gentiles. In fact, the, it says uh, he, he's the only gospel writer to actually write to a specific person. And some people have debated back and forth as to whether or not Theophilus, which literally in Greek just means lover of God, if that's a real person or if that's just kind of a group of people that Luke was writing to. But one way or another, Luke was writing primarily to, I mean, because he, he titled this in Greek, he's writing this primarily to Gentile readers. He emphasizes uh, the angels saying that Jesus brought glad tidings to all people, that he appeared to the shepherds who were outcasts of the society. And Simeon's praise that Jesus would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Luke wants to understand that Jesus, or wants us to understand that Jesus was on a mission to reach the outcasts of society, and we are to follow in his footsteps. This is true discipleship, following Jesus daily, even against our own culture and our own understanding of social norms. As Jesus will say in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so let's look at the story according to Luke, Luke's good news. So like I said, Luke gives the most detailed accounts of Jesus's birth and his childhood, including the birth of John the Baptist, uh, Jesus's birth in Bethlehem, the angels appearing to the shepherds and more. Uh, Luke begins by giving these two uh, occurrences, these parallel uh, occurrences of God doing the, um, a miracle in the womb. We, you can look all throughout the Old Testament. What did God do in so many people? He performed a miracle in the womb and brought life from barrenness. And that's exactly what he does in the birth account of John the Baptist and in the birth account of Jesus. Because John the Baptist was born to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who are advanced in years. And then he also talks about the, uh, the conception of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And then, like I said, he has specific insight into what's going on in Mary's mind as Mary's song of praise later on in chapter 1 comes through. And then Zechariah's song of praise as, as John the Baptist is born. And then he gives these details about the birth of Christ. And then he jumps right into John the Baptist's ministry in, John, I mean, in Luke chapter 3. But at the end of chapter 3, we see something familiar. If you notice, just like Matthew, he gives us a genealogy. But do you remember Matthew's genealogy well? In fact, let's just turn back over there because it's helpful for us to, 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 to compare these things. And I would encourage you, if you, in your Bible library or your library at home, if you don't have a parallel Bible, Parallel Bible is a really, really cool thing uh, because what it does is it takes passages from each gospel and puts them alongside each other. So you can read how they, how they had different perspectives on different events. And the genealogy is one of those places where a parallel Bible would really help because you see how Matthew, remember Matthew was trying to help us uh, connect Jesus with the line of David and then to the line of Abraham. 
because ultimately he was trying to show us that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And he goes back through the deportation uh, to Babylon. He goes, uh, and, then, and then we talked about verse 17 of Matthew chapter 1. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the, uh, from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. You remember we talked about the, how a Jewish person would have, would have just felt the tension there from 14, 14, 14. Which, for all you math whizzes, uh, that's seven, 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 seven. And so they, in their minds, they would have begged for, we need another seven. And what Matthew's saying is, Jesus is that, he is that, per, he's that perfection. He's that fulfillment. He's the one that's coming in God's perfect timing. Just like Galatians 4, 4 says, that in this fullness of time, this time that was pregnant with purpose, God sent Jesus. And so that's Matthew's purpose for giving the genealogy. Now, compare that, that, that heavy Jewish genealogy, turn back over to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And he goes, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then he goes through Joseph's line. And then in verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, connects him with Abraham. But then he goes all the way back to, look at verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why would Luke do this? I mean, first of all, talk about doing your homework, right? I mean, Ancestry.com doesn't have anything on Luke. Uh, he, to, to be able to trace Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam. Luke had obviously had either a really good uh, gopher assistant in his, uh, at his disposal, or Luke knew. Luke studied. Luke researched, which is probably the case. He traces him all the way back to Adam. Why would Luke do this when uh, he had read Matthew's account? We, that's, that's, remember, he's talking about Matthew and Mark's account in Luke chapter 1, those early verses. So why would he do this? Luke was a Gentile writing to Gentiles, showing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So who was the, who was the forefather of all humanity? Adam. And so if Jesus is connected to Adam, then Jesus' Jesus's purpose don't just apply to the Jews. They apply to everybody. And that's the goal of Luke's genealogy. He is the Savior of all humanity. Well, then we jump into chapter 4 and, the, and Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 1. Returned from the Jordan was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, I'll be honest with you. As I have, as, as we've gone through this year and gone through the Bible, I have just, I, I've almost got like the next 20 years of message uh, series lined up for us. Because I'll go through and I'll say, Man, I really want to take some time to study this, you know, or man, I really want to take some time to study this. And we'll do some of that on Wednesday night, some of that on Sunday morning, some of that on Sunday nights in the future. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that this passage right here, it, it just has a massive amount of impact for us theologically, but then also for us practically. Let me give you an example of that. So let's start with the practical component of it. Uh, well, no, let's start with the theological component of it. So he just connected... He just connected Jesus to Adam, right? So where was Adam placed at the, at the beginning when he was created? Where was Adam put? In Eden. He was put in the garden. Was the garden a, a perfect place? 
Right, it was. So the garden was a perfect place. And Adam faced the accuser, the serpent, right? And he was, he was basically tempted to define his life on his own terms rather than on God's terms by what God had said, right? And where he was in this perfect place where he had this, this, this fullness of walking in the presence of God and knowing God, he was faced with that temptation and what happened? He failed, right? And when he failed, Romans chapter 5 tells us that he failed on behalf of us all. This is a doctrine called federal headship. That he failed on behalf of us all. But Jesus is not in a garden, is he? He's in the opposite of a garden. He's in the, he's in the, uh, you think about the wilderness and just even what the wilderness represents all throughout the rest of scripture. The wilderness is not a place you want to be. The wilderness represents the worst of the world. And Jesus goes into the, into the heart of darkness, if you will. And who does he face there? He faces the accuser. And unlike Adam, he's not in a perfect place. He's in a horrible place. But unlike Adam, he's got a connection to his father that is from the heart. And so the accuser tempts Jesus. And instead of defining life and his purpose on his own terms, what does Jesus do? Jesus quotes, but Jesus did exactly what Adam should have done, right? He should have quoted back to the enemy God's own words and stood firm in them. And so we get three separate times of Jesus standing firm, right? Three separate times of Jesus standing firm and succeeding where the old Adam failed. And so what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 is where, where the first Adam in a garden didn't stand on the word of God and fell and cast all of us into sin. Now the second Adam, Jesus, enters into our brokenness, is faced with the same temptation, stands on the word of God and succeeds, achieves what we could never achieve on behalf of of all humanity. Jesus is truly the true and better Adam. He's the second Adam who accomplished what the first Adam could not do. Jesus is the restorer of the blessing. Remember we talked about that? How Abraham, uh, how Adam was meant to be a blessing to all creation. He was an ambassador of God, made in the image of God, and he was supposed to go and he was supposed to represent God to all creation, but he failed. And sin separated us from that purpose. And so God established his covenant with Abraham. Why? To bring the blessing of God back to the nations. And so Luke records this temptation, not because it's just a, you know, kind of a, a landmark event in Jesus' life, but Jesus, Luke sees Jesus as that second Adam standing in the wilderness on our behalf, achieving what we could never achieve so that God's blessing can be return not only to us, but to the world as well. You see that? It's just this beautiful picture, but then the practical part of it, well, you, you've heard me say it over and over again, Satan's not innovative. Satan has no new strategies. When it comes to spiritual warfare, don't, don't think that you, I mean, yes, you have a, an enemy prowling around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour, but listen, Satan doesn't have a new game. Satan has an old game. And when you look at the temptations that he throws at Jesus, it's really the same temptation that he threw at Adam in the garden. 
Which tells us that if we, can, if we can understand that Satan's temptations in our life are always geared towards us doubting the word of God that we're called to store in our heart. If we can recognize that, then, then what's the remedy? If we will know the word of God and we will know his voice and we will know what it means to walk by faith and we will know our purpose and we will know him because we've walked with him. And we'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. Because even though he is a wily enemy, he is not innovative. He will throw the same old mess at you over and over and over and over again. Just repackaged in a different way. And if you know how to stand firm, you can endure. Because that is God's will for your life. We stand firm the same way Jesus did. By affirming God's purpose for our life using the word that he's spoken to us. If you want to know what God says now, then look at what he has said in his word. And you will find not just fullness and life, but you will find steadfastness as well. And so Jesus endures that temptation in the wilderness. And then chapter uh, 4, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And report went out to all the surrounding country, and he began teaching in their and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. But then he goes into Nazareth, where he had been brought up, verse sixteen says. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now some people say that like when you went in and you wanted to read from a specific passage, you could like you could like just tell them, hey, give me the scroll of Isaiah 61. Other people said that they had kind of a, a lectionary, if you will. You know, they had kind of a curriculum that then they would be just reading through, which kind of brings this element of like providence of like, did he just stand up and there's Isaiah 61 and Jesus is like, all right, well, this is it. <laughs> and he's like, it's about, it's about to get real in here, you know. And he reads this and he says, look at verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what he leaves off now is interesting. You know, Isaiah 61, he said he leaves off and the day of vengeance of our God, right? Why would he leave that off? John 3, 16 and 17, right? Jesus came. Jesus didn't come into the world right now to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. The day of vengeance is going to come later, but now he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, verse 20 says, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I, I, I read Luke and I'm like, man, Jesus was the man. I mean, just like you just feel all eyes on him. And he's saying, today's the day. This is truly the year of the Lord's favor. I'm here. I'm here. And it's such an interesting, like, this is, this is what we get when we study these gospel accounts morning and evening, right? Because you see Jesus on the one hand telling the disciples, hey, don't tell anybody about me, right? The messianic secret, hey, don't tell anybody about me. But then Jesus sits down in the synagogue and he says, it's me, I'm here. And far from being contradictory accounts, we understand these in their specific context. That, that in one sense, Jesus didn't want people to misunderstand them by, by having all of these connotations about the Messiah and what that meant. But here, as he's reading the Word of God from Isaiah 61, 
He said, this is who the Messiah really is. It has nothing to do with a military victory. It has nothing to do with, with having some kind of, you know, me bringing some kind of kingdom where I'm going to destroy the Romans. This is good news for the poor, liberty for the captives, recovery of the sight for the blind, and liberty to those who are oppressed. And then he, he gets going, and that's exactly what he does. And then to chapter 4, he heals a man with an unclean demon. And then he heals many, and then he continues to preach. In chapter 5, he calls his first disciples. And then miracle, miracle, miracle. Jesus calls Levi. Levi, you remember, is Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Levi was a tax collector, and this dude was hated. And yet Jesus calls him to follow him. And then he just keeps on going until you get to uh, chapter 9. And to turn over to chapter 9, as you're turning there, just know that what Jesus is doing is basically uh, Luke put Simeon and, um, and uh, Elizabeth, I mean, uh, Zechariah and Mary's song up at the very beginning. And what he's doing is he's showing that God cares about these people that nobody else cares about. That God is at work in people that really, I mean, nobody else really is going to work in them. Nobody, nobody's coming to them. Nobody's doing any ministry to them. They are the outcasts of society. An old priest and his barren wife, they're nobodies. Uh, a young Jewish girl, she's a nobody. John the Baptist, I mean, he's a crazy guy living out in the wilderness. Uh, all of these people that Jesus is touching, Levi, we hate that guy. And so Jesus is turning the world upside down. And in, in Luke chapter 6, he gives his Sermon on the Plain, which tells them basically the same thing the Sermon on the Mount did, that Jesus is reversing everything. That if you want to lead, lead, then you need to serve. If you want to be rich, then be, then, then, then be poor in spirit and, and give away what you have. If you want to be brought near, then recognize that you are an outcast. And so in, G, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus establishes his kingdom values. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus gathers this newly formed Israel with these new values, guided by these principles that he just taught, and he prepares the way for him to return to Jerusalem. And all along the way, it's like Jesus is on this journey back to Jerusalem, and he teaches these parables with all those he encounters. And this is meant to show us that discipleship is not something that happens at one point in the past, but it's walking with Jesus and learning from him throughout his life. And then once again in chapter 9, you have the transfiguration. Once again mentioning, we talked about that this morning, but that's significant that it appears here again in Luke. This is my son. He's doing my will. Listen to him. And then he sends out the 72 to prepare the way and shows us that being a disciple means that, that we participate in the kingdom mission, making it our own. And as he travels, he continues to form this new Israel, and you can just keep turning to Luke 15. Because Jesus is accumulating people who are following him, who are the sick, the blind, they're Samaritans, they're tax collectors, and they're all transformed because Jesus is seeking to save what was lost. He eats with them and they celebrate with him. But not everybody is happy and responds positively. And that's where we come to Luke chapter 15, very familiar passage. And just like I talked about Mark chapter 8 being the turning point for Jesus this morning, Luke chapter 15 is kind of the turning point in Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke. Because notice the tax collectors, verse 15, and the sinners were all drawing near to him. 
And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus tells three parables. And you know the, the three parables, the, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the prodigal son. But what's the point of all three? It's not what was lost, but it's the joy of the return, right? The woman turns her house upside down, finds the lost coin, she throws a party. The man finds, he leaves the 99 and goes and gets the, the one lost sheep and comes back and he's rejoicing. And then the parable of the prodigal son, the, the, the young boy uh, leaves, uh, the, the son leaves and spends all of his money on, you know, illicit things and then comes back having come to himself and the father does what? He throws a party. And it's, all not, it's, it's not meant for it's the, the coin, the sheep, the, the prodigal son are not the point. The point is that Pharisees, you're the older brother. Your father and all of heaven is rejoicing at these people coming. But you're not. You're being prideful and hypocritical and why aren't you happy about the nations coming into the kingdom through repentance and faith? Isn't that the whole purpose of the Messiah's coming? Well, they're not satisfied with that. And he continues to tell them parables. And in Luke chapter 19, Jesus turns his eyes towards Jerusalem, much like we saw this morning in the book of Mark. He, he goes and he begins to recognize that his death is coming. The resistance to Jesus is ramped up, and as Jesus nears the city, Luke records that Jesus weeps. And yet his disciples hail him as king, but Israel's leaders are rejecting them, and they are setting the Jewish people on a road to rebellion and destruction. And so in Luke chapter 20, Jesus, once again, being this man's man, he, he goes into the temple and predicts, predicts its destruction. He says that the temple has become a den of rebels and it's going to be destroyed. This generates a whole series of debates all leading up to Jesus' prediction that the Roman armies will one day surround and decimate the city and the temple all within a generation. And history records that Jesus was absolutely right when he said that. And then in Luke 22, Jesus gathers his disciples to celebrate a Passover meal. Jesus turns the, the meal's bread and wine into new symbols about this new exodus. His broken body and his shed blood will bring liberation for Jesus' renewed Israel. And then you know the rest of the story, like we said this morning, that Jesus is arrested, that he's examined before the Jewish leaders and before the Roman governor Pilate. And he's put on trial as one proclaiming to be, or one claiming to be king. You see, and so what we get from Luke's account of Jesus' trial, he gives very detailed back and forth between Pilate and Herod and the, the Jewish leaders. And Luke emphasizes Jesus' innocence. Look at verse 23, I mean chapter 23, verse 4. Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. That's not good enough for them. They go, to, go down to verse 14. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of anything, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. And then look at verse 22. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will punish him and release him. 
But the leaders finally compel Pilate to have him crucified. But even in his painful death, even in his painful death, look at verse 39 of, uh, of chapter 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save us and yourself. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, and he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. With this last act of generosity and kindness and hope offered to a humiliated criminal, Jesus dies. And on the first day of the week, some of the disciples came to the tomb to find it empty. Look at verse 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they went in and they did not find the body of Jesus. And much like we saw in Mark this morning, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground and said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. And we get, all, we get this account in beginning of verse 13 that is unique to Luke. This account on the road to Emmaus. That two of his disciples that very day were going to a village named Emmaus. Verse 13, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And they were, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Luke noting, how is that possible? Jesus has like a superpower here. And he said to him, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they, they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him and said, are you, not, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these last days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God, all the people. How our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it's now the third day since all these things happened. So Jesus is there with them, but they don't recognize him. And he asks them why they're so sad. And they go on to talk about their hopes. Now they hope Jesus would, would redeem Israel, but now he's dead. Their hopes have died with him. And so Jesus goes on and he has a meal with them and he breaks bread just as he did at the Passover. And it's almost like at that moment they recognize him and then he disappears. And so what Luke is telling us in chapter 24 is a very unique account. He's telling us that when, when the disciples of Jesus Christ impose their agenda and their view of reality on Jesus, he remains invisible and unknown to them. But it's only when we submit ourselves to the upside-down kingdom of Jesus that we will see and know the real Jesus. And then the last several verses record the last words of Jesus to his disciples, telling them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And look, look specifically at uh, verse 48. It says, well, look verse 47. Repentance and, and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, and stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. 
And so turn over from there to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And you'll kind of see how the continuity of Luke's thought process between the end of his gospel account and the beginning of, of the book of Acts. And so the, the book of Luke ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit and the ascension. And then the book of Acts begins with the promise of the Holy Spirit and the ascension. And just as he told them, you're going to be witnesses of these things and wait for the Spirit. In the same way, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is taken up. And then you know, and we'll study it in a few weeks here, how the Spirit comes and the world changes all over again. And so that's the, the good news, according to Luke, is that you have this... This Savior who has, who has gone and sought the outcasts. In Matthew, we saw, is he Lord? Are you following his teaching? Mark asked, are you serving sacrificially as he did? And Luke asked, no, really, are you serving and are you ministering to the outcasts, to the poor, and to those who are oppressed by sin? What about the nations? Are you preaching the good news to them as well? You see, in our day and age, there's... There's this great concern for something called social justice. In fact, if, you, if you've turned on the news or maybe if you've kept up with uh, news coming out of evangelical circles in the past couple of weeks, this whole idea of social justice has been on everybody's mind. And uh, John MacArthur just issued a statement on social justice. You got the Southern Baptist Convention meeting back in June being concerned about social justice. And, and you have all of these people. And in fact, they, they, they say that, that we're raising up a whole generation of, of SJWs, social justice warriors. What does that even mean anyway, right? I just want to tell you, friends, don't get caught up in the hype. Social justice warriors are pursuing causes that have roots in the gospel, but they're pursuing them without the gospel. See, there's the thought that you can address and fix all of the ills of society. But if you want to really fix anything, you've got to ask what's in your toolbox to fix them. Can I tell you that many people who are being raised up as, as the woke generation, as social justice warriors, what's happening is actually they are, being, they are being told that the way to get rid of intolerance is to be intolerant, right? The way to deal with the oppressors is to oppress. Literally, this is the only solution that they can come up with. In fact, several, several months ago, you know, I told you about the, the uh, and I, I still look forward to going to it with my daughters, the, uh, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. It's in Montgomery. And it's devoted to all of, uh, uh, of the lynchings that took place all across the United States. So it's not just in the South. But all of the lynchings that took place across the United States. And several months ago, they were, uh, actually, I guess it was last year, they, they opened it up. And uh, maybe it was several months ago. Anyway, I can't remember. Uh, they, they opened it up, and they were having this huge concert, right? And you had Usher and, and, and uh, Dave Matthews and, and Common, who's a rapper. And, then, and you had Kirk Franklin, who's kind of is in Christian circles, right? And it's all this, this concert for peace and justice. I said, guys, I'm all for remembering these things that have happened. I think it's a, a necessary part of our culture that we remember, that we weep, that we grieve, 
at injustices in the past, but I want to tell you that I'm not confident that any of these, any of these folks who are going to be on the stage really have any idea about justice at all. Their version of justice is to just be unjust to those who've been unjust in the past. That doesn't work. That's not reality. And if you want, if you want, if you want real social justice, look at the social justice warrior of all social justice warriors. His name is Jesus. Because what he called social justice, or I mean, what, what they call social justice, you know what Jesus called it? Love. <laughs> Love. How did Jesus sum up the entire gospel message, the entire, entirety of the Bible, right? Love God, love people. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the, on the Mount, he gives this revolutionary idea. Love your enemies and do not return evil for evil, right? And who's the primary person that took up that cause in the, in the last century? Martin Luther King Jr., right? The only time we've seen effective change in our nation was when it was rooted not in any kind of social justice warrior principles, right? Intolerance is the only way you can drive out intolerance. No, it's rooted in Christ's love. And so the Gospel of Luke tells us, do you love outcasts like Jesus loved outcasts? Do you love the poor like Jesus loved the poor? Do you look after orphans and widows and the people that society doesn't want anything to do with like, like Jesus looked after them? And do you want to see the kingdom flourish among those who nobody else wants to touch? And connect with Jesus and the love that he transforms us with and then the love that he overflows into the world around us. One of, the, one of my favorite examples of this is a guy named William Booth. William Booth is the founder of the Salvation Army, which is an organization who ministers to these outcasts, to these people that, that nobody else wants to touch. And you say, well, I mean, all of us are familiar with Salvation Army in, in one sense or another. I actually have some, some friends who are like uh, over several rehab centers. And let me tell you, I've never, I've never seen effective, compassionate ministry uh, anywhere else like I've seen it in them. The only, only place that, uh, that came close was when we were in New Orleans and we did Grace at the Green Light, which was like everybody's favorite thing. It was when we went and served meals to the homeless in the morning. It was awesome. It was amazing. And part of it was just amazing to get to serve these people. It wasn't like we received anything back. I mean, nothing back. But it was connecting with this understanding, putting our roots deep in this understanding of justice and love and compassion like Jesus, like Jesus exemplified for us. Because what are we prone to do? We're prone to, to distance ourselves from people who are broken from people who look different than we are, from, from people who, who don't have what we have, from people who are needy. We distance ourselves from them to our own peril. One of the most enriching things that I do every month is to go and to sit in the interview room at the Judson Baptist Association uh, Food Bank. Sometimes I don't want to go, I'll be honest. But every time I go and I'm able to sit there and pray for those people, they don't look like me. They don't, they, don't, they don't speak for the most part like I speak. Some of them don't smell like I smell, which isn't always good. My wife can tell you that. But they, 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 don't, they don't dress like I dress. 
but to sit there and to hold their hand and to tell them about a God who loves them so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for them. Something about that that ministers back to me, which speaks to there's, there's, there's a design component in all of this. And William Booth was one of these guys that, that got it right. And because ideas have consequences, he set this organization, the Salvation Army, on a trajectory to truly minister for people. And so how did it happen? What well, age 15, sometime, sometime during his 15th year, William was in, invited by a Wesleyan couple to attend chapel where he was converted. And he wrote in his diary, this is what he said. He said, God will have all that there is of William Booth. And it continued. It, it, it grew with this God-sized vision that he, ha- that he had. He said, God loves with a great love the man whose heart is bursting with passion for the impossible. Hear that again. God loves with a great love the man whose heart is bursting with a passion for the impossible. Man, I've prayed for that for our church. That God would birth within us people who have a passion for the impossible. And William had a passion for the impossible for reaching into sectors of society nobody wanted to reach into. And it grew through this inspirational leadership like so often it did where he just challenged people until they got to the, to the core of who they were to recognize they didn't want to follow God. They didn't want to, they didn't want to follow after God's call to reach those who were unreachable. He said this one time, he said, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join him, heart and soul and body and circumstances, in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Someone asked William Booth at the end of his life, said, why you? This is him towards the end of his life. He was only... 30 years old in this picture. No, I'm just kidding. I think he was a lot older than that. Somebody asked him, they said, why you? And this is what he said. He said, I don't know. He said, there were people who were smarter than me. There were people who were wealthier than me. There were people who had greater opportunity than I. I guess it's just that I decided that when God showed me what he could do for poor little London, I decided that that day he would have all of me. You know, I wonder if we love the poor like Jesus loved the poor. I wonder if we love the outcast like Jesus loved the outcast. I wonder if we, if we really have taken up the cause of the widows and the orphans. I prayed for God to birth a vision in our church and, and you as individuals because it's literally impossible for the church to have a ministry in every area. But what the church can have is people, individual people and families who are mobilized for a specific purpose. And some of you have done this. You've done foster care. You've adopted kids. Uh, you've, you've taken it on yourself and some of you to, to minister uh, very sacrificially to widows in our church, uh, minister to the sick, to be there when people are dying. Uh, and listen, all, all of that's great. But I would just ask you, is there, is there something that God has called you to do? in this area, to the outcasts, to the poor, to the weak, the orphans, the widows, that you're not doing? 
Is, is there more to be done? Absolutely. And if there's more to be done, if there's, if there's needs left unmet, then my understanding of, of the way God works is that God will birth a vision in people to take that step to say, this is my calling. And I'm going to own this. This is my purpose. This is my area. This is, this is my passion. I'm going to take a step forward and I'm going to do this. And listen, I told you this morning, there are areas of our church where we need people to step up. There are areas of our church where nobody's stepped up in a long time and we need people to step up. And so my desire is to see us look at Jesus in the Gospels and then just follow him where he's leading us to go today. Just follow him. And so what does that look like for you? Where is Jesus saying, follow me? Across the street, across town, across the world, follow me. It's up to you. Once again, like William Booth said, it's not a matter of are you called. It's a matter of have you heard the call. And so where is God calling? Remember, there's no other, there's no other answer than yes, Lord, to be said by those who claim the name of Jesus. And so let's take a few moments here at the end of our time together tonight. And just as a way to respond to this text, I just want to take some time and I want to pray. And as I'm praying, I want you to pray. You know, when I pray, I don't know if you guys know this, but y'all can pray like on your own while I pray. It's, it's okay to do that. Um, but I'm going to pray. I want you to ask God that question. God, is there a place where you're calling and I'm not, I'm not responding? Or is there a place where you've called in the past where I've, I've said no, or I've been a someday saying, I've kept your will at arm's length. Is there, is there a ministry? Is there a, is there a people group in our church or in our community or in our, in our nation or in, uh, across the world who you, would, who you would mobilize me and my family to go to? And my prayer is, is that we would find ourselves being obedient tonight and saying, yes, Lord, and taking the steps to go and and, and take captive that area for the lordship of Christ because there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence as to which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out in mine. And it's just up to us to go into those areas and say this is his. This is his. And to be ambassadors of his lordship and his design and his good news in that area. So I long for a church of mobilized, missional-thinking people who go and do just that. And so as I pray, you commit yourselves to the Lord, ask him those questions tonight, and then we'll be done.